Welcome inside the Paris Sea Palace Hive of 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Comedy on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app to your smartphone so you can stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. We can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today and serendipity reigns supreme as it always does here on the jfs because um i was doing my fourth interview with uh, father dominic famolaro and uh he um in in preparation for the art of the rhythm section event uh a week from today or all next week at the mesa performing arts center hosted by billy cobham and uh <clears throat> during the interview uh dom mentioned that um it would be really great if i connected with a cat who uh played with the shamanistic masters of music, the melodic improvisation known as jazz. And he said, I think you really have a great hang with this cat. Uh, so we'll find out. Drummer Howie Silverman, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hey, Jake. How are you, man? Hey, it's good to hear you, brother. <laughs> you know, um, I just would like to ask you just your own personal uh, point of view about whether you think that the rhythm sections have been responsible for the increase of musical vocabulary um, on the bandstand. Do you think rhythm sections are responsible for creating new vocabulary on the bandstand? Definitely. That's a great question. That's a pretty loaded question, Jake. Yeah, and, 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 and you're loaded for bear, man, so you, you riff on that any way you yeah. want. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, from a, a drummer's point of view, who end up becoming a piano player, uh, I definitely say so, 100%. The whole industry has changed. The, the style of music, the way they play music, the way we hear it, the, it's totally changed today. I mean, years ago, when I was playing with Dizzy, uh, the style that we played in is totally different today than it was before, and, and so much more of it is influenced by the rhythm section, for sure, 100%. I mean, when I was with Dizzy, this whole thing was all about the rhythm section. He had planted himself in such a way that he would stand right beside the drummer with his microphone. Even though he's the lead guy of the show, he'd come and stand right beside me at the drums, plant his mic there, and embed himself in the heart of the rhythm section. That was key to him. So, Do you feel that, um, I mean, can you talk about a time before you even got on the bandstand with Dizzy when there was a period of time in, in, in uh, improvisational music when a rhythm section, you know, could have been, I mean, going back to Slam Stewart, it could have been, you know, Reggie, uh, Paul Chambers and Elvin Jones. Was, was there a seminal rhythm section that stands out to you as people that were pushing the vocabulary? Um, I think the biggest influence for me that made a big change was Jack DeJanet and Tony Williams and their approach to playing in the rhythm section, the way they played the night we were playing. And I figured this is very exciting, playing with a cat like this. So I, I was playing my usual stuff. All that stuff. And he kept looking around at me, and I just figured, uh-oh, something's not happening right here. <laughs> and at the, end of the, at the end of the first scene, he says, how? He goes, come on, let me buy you a drink. And I figured, for sure, something's not going right here. So we sit down at the table, and he buys me a drink, and he said, have you ever heard of the term tick-a-boom? And I said, tick-a-boom? What do you mean by tick-a-boom? 
And he said, check this out. Tick-a-boom, 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 tick-a-boom. And I turned to him and I said, okay, Flip, I get it. I know exactly what you're trying to tell me. Just wanted me to play the straight triplet all the way through, no accents, four on the bass drum, two on the hi-hat, and just keep the beat groove going for him while he played his thing. His thing was awesome, but that, and basically that's what he wanted from the bass player, that's what he wanted from the piano player. The piano player had a little more freedom and liberties in terms of the harmonic thing. But basically, that whole era that I grew up with when I was in my early teens, like that was the requirement from the rhythm section. And then I remember when I was, a few years later, when I heard Jack Dijonet playing, I said, man, what is this guy doing? <laughs> man, I never heard stuff like this. Man, he's really taking it outside of uh, the realm of what I'm used to. And of course, when I heard Tony Williams play with uh, Miles Davis, it totally blew my mind. I think those two guys were really influential and in, like just tipping the edge and opening up the door for everything that followed. I mean, Flip Phillips is not in my, I have a deep bag, but I, I mean, was that more swing rhythm that he was trying to work with yeah. you on? Yeah, all, all the swing stuff, yeah. Like, you know, the, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, like the mainstream jazz, you know, that everybody was playing back then. And then, you know, even to a large degree. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, like, because you jumped to more like, I'm just trying to figure out where the bebop rhythms fit in for you and, 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 and the propensity for, like, Kluke, for instance. Where does, where does he fit into your vernacular? That's a good question. Uh, I, I, I don't know if I could really answer that question. Uh, I know that uh, when I was in the scene, like in my early teens, uh, most of the mainstream jazz that was being played there wasn't, it was more of just the mainstream jazz. It wasn't like hard bop, you know, like uh, the jazz messengers. And, and, and even Elvin Jones. Uh, Elvin Jones, I never classified him as a bop player. You know, he right. was definitely a fusion. A fusion sort of funky swing player. You know, Jay Canna definitely was a hard mainstream bop player. You know, to some degree, Buddy Rich, you know, but um, I don't know. I just always moved towards the fusion music, like, very early on. I played tons of bop. I played tons of mainstream jazz. But I think when by the time I ended up with Dizzy, I was, like, in my mid-20s, um, he basically gave me a lot of freedom as long as I always let him know where one was at the end of eight bars. He gave me a lot of freedom. He just wanted it to cook. As long as it cooked and the time was happening, you could, you had a lot of liberty. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'm answering your no, question. No, you're doing great. This is, this, is this is all free association. What, tell me about um, your concept of... of uh, let me ask you about the, concept, the idea that any note can be the one and how Dizzy interpreted the one, how you made it clear to him where the one was. Well, that's, he first came up to me, uh, like we played a, when I first played a concert with him in a sound check, we were playing Night in Tunisia. I was playing The Time. He just kept turning around and looking at me. And it was a good thing. He wasn't looking at it in a bad way. Then he just came beside me and talked in my ear and said, man, just keep that groove going. Do whatever you want. Just let me know where one is at the end of every eight bars. Tell me, but I mean, when we when we talk about, like, sometimes with Elvin, you know, it was literally, you, you know, it was, where where was the one with that cat? You know, what's your concept of, of any note can be the one? Any note can be the one. Never thought about it that way before, Jake. I'm not sure what you mean by that question. I'm talking, you know what I mean by that is that if when you, when with Dizzy or with, uh, you know, you're playing, uh, I hate the word fusion, but you're playing music. And everybody goes off into a collective jam, improvisational jam, and you lose where the one is. And the idea that any, then, you know, but ultimately the one will come back around. And when everybody comes in on the one, the, that really that's the exhilarating feeling in my mind, the tension and release of music. I mean, you listen to Elvin Jones, I, I, don't, I don't even know how, most people just struggled to figure out where the one was. Um, but it was always there. So, I mean... Yeah, well, Alvin, Alvin had that solid pulse, but he did a lot of superimposition. He played a lot of the 
the triplet superimposed on the four four, like a three field on top of the four four, which created that that sort of whole free suspended kind of feeling uh, where you didn't know where the time was, or you felt like you didn't know where the time was, but the pulse was always there. The pulse was always there. That quarter note pulse was always there. He was just superimposing triplets on top of of the of the quarter note. A lot of what Tony Williams did, Jack DeJanet does all that, you know, all that stuff. So, I mean, to, when Dizzy said to me, like, let me know where one is, that's coming from more like the hard bop old school kind of uh, thinking. Like, I want to know where one is at the end of every eight bars, you know, because you can do whatever you want in between. But a lot of cats, aside from Dizzy, wouldn't even let you do that. Just straight triplets, straight, straight uh, triplets all the way through you know, don't dissipate from that pulse and make it swing. You know, that was a lot of the, the mainstream hardcore jazz that I was always playing with those leaders. Well, I'm going to read you this quote from a, a guy you may or may not have crossed paths with. It was a disease pianist, and he wrote a lot of tunes for him. It was Mike Longo. And uh, yeah, Mike Longo. Yeah. this is what he said in our second interview. He said, there was another thing that made Dizzy's music um, different than old jazz uh, that was the inclusion of five over four into the time flow prior to that that wasn't there it took me a while to figure out what he was talking about he was doing rhythm with his hands and he said most of the jazz musicians understand the three four and the six eight and the four four but the five is another thing altogether i can play a five four and a four four at the same time that primarily added a whole different kind of accentuation with dizzy the drummer became like a horn Dizzy and Charlie Parker represented the contrapuntal era of jazz. Dizzy used used to use the term the, the, the melodization of rhythm. Drums became part of the counterpoint. How do you feel about it? What, what do you think I about that? definitely agree with that. I mean, I feel that myself and in the way I, I approach the drums. I see it as a very melodic instrument. I actually see the drums as the keyboard instrument. It's funny because years ago I went and I... I had an audition in New York with this, this guy named Jim Blackley. I don't know if you ever heard the name. He was this uh, famous drum teacher. He just passed away a few years ago. And I was like 16 years old at the time when I went to see this guy. And he really focused on um, the time factor, how to extrapolate the true sweet spot of your groove and break it down, like, like break it down into subcomponents and then really get into understanding how that applies to the music. So I had, at the time when I went to see him, I was a, a buddy rich freak, so I was totally into just my chops and playing like all my chops. And and he actually said to me, what are you planning on doing with all those chops? <laughs> you want, you know, like, you have, you have enough chops. I did, like, man. Ten lifetimes, you know, ten lifetimes. And how old are you? Sixteen. You know, he goes, I suggest that you put less focus on your technical aspect of drums and go out and buy a piano and learn about music. That was my first lesson on audition with him. And then I went back home to Toronto and I was totally mortified. Like I was shocked. I, here I went to study with this incredible drum teacher and so much about it. It's going to change my playing forever. And he tells me not to practice the technical aspect of the drums, but to go buy a piano and learn how to play music. So I, I did. I took them literally and I spent the next 30 years like studying the piano and composition and harmony and theory and line writing and studied classical piano and jazz composition and you studied jazz composition continue yeah so you said there's a lot of great drummers out there but there's not there's very few um, great drummers that are great musicians and i just said to him i'm glad you said that i didn't say that you can say that you know but i'm not going to say that right I don't want any, any I don't want any rats from any any drummers coming back to me for making a statement like that, you know. But I, I know what Dom was getting at. Like Dom Dom's like sends people to me sometimes like if they need more musical education, they're just too rigid in their in their playing, they need to get more some more depth into their playing. So he'll send them to me and I'll I'll start to play with them. Uh, and introduce like harmony and melodic concept and how it applies to the rhythm. Like, I don't see a difference between the drums and the piano now after all these years of playing both instruments. And I think Jack yeah, DeJanet so would agree with you because he's a, he's a great piano. But I do, I, I need you to go a little bit deeper on this in the sense that, you know, you're playing uh, with this cat in New York and he's like, yo, dude, you, you, what are you doing with all these chops? What are you going to do with all these chops? 
And then how did you, um, like, by learning more uh, of the rudiments of music, how did it become, how did you become a more melodic player? Because I'm not talking about, I mean, maybe you were one of those guys that was just up there, you know, there are dudes, I remember talking to uh, Denny Sywell, the drummer from Wings, and he was yeah. sit, sitting with Ndugu Chancellor at this clinic, rest in peace, and there was a guy who was on the trap set, you know, just burning away 30 minutes, didn't even, I mean, perfection, technique, facility on fire. Yeah. And then uh, he took a break and then he did it like another 20 minutes. And then he looks over and Dugu's snoring. Like he's passed out, right? He's just like, it was so boring, right? Is that what you were, I mean, is how did you become, how did you simplify, become more knowledgeable and yet became and and then, but the drum drums then became a melodic instrument for you. Uh, by studying um, improvisation, learning how to improvise and create lines. Uh, first of all, being aware being aware of the harmonic sense made a big big shift for me. I could feel and hear where the music was moving, so that affected the way I play my fills. But then my fills became less uh, drum mystic and more melodic, the better I became at improvising, playing lines. And then I became ultra sensitive to the way the music would move and what the soloist was trying to do. And I realized that, man, I'm really getting in the way. I'm playing all this stuff that's not really relating to what he's really doing melodically. And I just started to change it. I started to notice very subtle things started to happen. I became more sensitive, I stopped doing a lot of drumnestic fills. I see so much of that still going on. Um, and I focus more on music itself. That's what Dizzy always talked about. It's all about the music and concentrating on the music. It's got a life of its own. And uh, we don't want to interfere with that. So by being proficient technically, um, that was my approach when I was a young cat and I was started to play. And so everything that I would hear and play in relationship to the music uh, was more drumnistic from a, just a rhythm point of view. Um, and as I became a better piano player and I started to write more music, um, things started to change. It was a very subtle change where it became a part of me and then I started to hear the drums in a totally different way. I even started to tune my drums differently, added some more drums, added different textures uh, so I could play melodically on the instrument as opposed to just playing a lot of patterns and a lot of things that I've worked out, which I see seems to be, I hope this doesn't come back to me <laughs> by 10 million drummers, but seems to be a technical epidemic today. Everybody's like playing a lot of similar licks and playing a lot of stuff that's a lot of drumnistic stuff and doesn't have time to do with the actual music itself. Well, and let me ask you quite, well, let me ask you though, uh, yeah. how he's at a, how much of that has to do with the fact that, as Steve Swallows told me on several occasions, that uh, uh, the learning is going on in academia. And once you codify a, a, a language that has a life of its own, it's going to become pretty sterile or whatever word you use, technical. How much of the street scholar mentality that you had growing up uh, aided you in being able to play tastefully on the kit? We're just going to have to work through this. I'm having a ball. I just, did, I don't know. Did you hear my question? This, this obviously is not, this obviously is not live. No, no. I mean, it, no, it's not, it's not live. It's, uh, it, it, I'm going to edit it down and we'll, and then I'll, I'll let you know when it's going to air. But, um, did, so what I was saying was, I remember I auditioned for this band, uh, um, it was Hey Good Hardy and the Montage. Excellent band. Like they played a lot of cover stuff. Oh, I love Hey, hey Good Hardy, dude. That dude's yeah. a badass. So, yeah, badass. So I remember I auditioned for his band and actually played in it for a while. 
No, I know what happened. It was so long ago. I think I was like 17, and his drummer broke his arm. So the, the guitar player recommended me, so I went and I played for a month in that band. It was a fantastic band. And so I'm playing all my stuff, and I'm nailing it, I'm playing everything, and I figured, oh, man, I'm going to get this gig, sure. Oh, this guy's not coming back, you know, by the way I'm playing. But uh, when he came back, I was gone. And I remember <laughs> it was a real learning experience. What the heck, man? My chops are on fire. This guy doesn't have my chops. And what's going on? Like, how come he's going to prefer this guy over me? I mean, I was only a 16-year-old pitcher. What did I know? But I went to hear the band. And I remember it was a real shock for me because he didn't have half my facility, but man, he was right in the sweet spot. And he didn't play tons of stuff, but all his fills were extremely musical and supported Haygood and all the singers. It was a real wake-up call for me, and I went, holy shit. And so that's the difference between like playing all this technical stuff and thinking I'm really killing it as opposed to just playing the music itself. Like A lot of times that saying, less is better. Right, and most of the time it is less is better. I find music has evolved, no doubt about it, in the 21st century. But I still feel a lot of times that we're all too busy. We're all saying so much. Like there's so much going on in the world. Everything's going by so fast, and we all have so much to say. And a lot of times it just feels like a barrage of notes. That sometimes I wish they would take away 50% of them. You know, we don't need that many. <laughs> that's just me how do you how do, how, how do you how, let me t- like when you talk to students how do you is is it more nonverbal the way you can try to get them to ease up on the on the blithering or the the lack of um the lack of space i mean like yeah, you s- I, 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 I tell them in terms of a conversation usually when i when i have my students come in they play on the set of drums and i have my keyboards right beside them and it's all programmed to my recording studio. So we put the headphones on and we got a beautiful sound. And I start to play some stuff on the piano and they start to play with me. And then if it's moving along nicely and I'm having a good conversation, I feel they're listening to me and I'm listening to them and it's a give and take. Then I'll let it go for a while until I stop and I start s- suggesting certain things. But there's number of drummers that come in there and they just, I can't get a word in edgewise. I make one little phrase and they mimic it right away. Or I play a little line and they respond right away with a flurry of notes, you know, and there's so much going on and I haven't really got into the conversation yet. So I have to stop and whoa, 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 whoa. You got to imagine that we're having a conversation, the two of us. We're feeding off each other. You're not going to, if I tell you something, I'm reciting a story to you, you're not going to repeat it verbatim as you're listening to me. You're going to have a different response based on what, how, what I'm saying and how reflective I am of certain things I'm saying. So... You have to approach that in the same way with the music, you know, and you have to give it time to breathe and you have to feed off each other. So that's basically my approach. And that's how I start to like step by step, pull things out of their playing. So they're playing less and not so technical. Like I find that so many of the drummers today are just so technical and so busy. Well, no, that was my, and 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 my, my question is, and I, I just, I hope we, we stay, you still with me? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, good. Um, how much of it has to do with the fact that it's that they're learning within academia and they don't have the chance to play on the bandstand for a month at a time at, at some upholstered sewer with very little with with tons of dynamics and no no sound system? I mean, to me, there's a street scholar mentality versus academia, and isn't that isn't that once you codify a music like jazz that Dizzy said it has a life of its own? What do you do? That's part of it. I mean, it, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an awareness. Um, it's, it's a funny, funny thing uh, because there's, like if you go on YouTube, you go on online, you check everything out, you watch all these great drummers, like you could watch one solo after the next and be, be bombarded with everything. Um, and like even, when, you know, I watched the flip. Having a ball here with Howie Silverman, but uh, you were watching a clip. Go ahead. Yeah, I was watching a clip of Buddy the other night, and it blew me away. Like he came out; it was probably late '90s. He was he was with one of his bands, like the Younger Cats, that were playing with him, and he played a medium swing tune. And he started. He played his intro, and then the band came in and stopped them right away because 
he felt that they didn't come right in that sweet spot where he started. So in front of the audience and everybody, he just stopped the entire band and started again. And they came in, and he was popping the time. He was really popping the time. That was one thing that separated Buddy from everybody else. He could really swing his ass off. <laughs> and then he came to his, his drum solo, and I love Buddy. I mean, he, he, when I was a kid, he was my idol. But I'm telling you, I didn't find his drum solos themselves to be that musical. They were technically very advanced and a lot of drumnestic things going on. But I didn't feel they were like extremely melodic and really, really musical like some other cats, like a guy like Papa Joe Jones or Philly Joe Jones, you know, totally different styles of playing. But I'm thinking in terms of the melodic thing, where it's moving, how it's related to the music, how many times you hear guys trading eights and the piano player is killing it and all of a sudden the drummer comes in and it sounds like everything in the kitchen sink has been thrown into that eight and it had no continuation from the line that was just played from the soloist a second ago for that eight bars. I hear that all the time. And so like I'm I'm trying to change that. So like Dom has always pushed me to, to help the guys to try to change that, to push that because of it's really important to work on that musical aspect. It will just deepen your drumnistic things, you know, and you'll become much more aware. Look at Steve Gadd. Steve Gadd, I swear, must be a proficient piano player, although I don't know. He's extremely musical, and his solos are extremely musical, although he has a lot of chops. He doesn't use half of the chops that a lot of the guys use. So I think it's kind of an epidemic at this point. That it needs to, more of an awareness needs to be made, you know, of, of the approach to things regarding that issue. Well, I mean... Also, um, how much of it has to do with the fact, I mean, can you talk about, like, when you're, when you're doing this art train trio when you started, I mean. Oh, God. Well, listen. Where did that come up? Well, I mean, you know, I, 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 by the way, just for the. just and a half years old. <laughs> yeah, you know, let, let me tell you something. I've interviewed Peter Appleyard and Phil. I've interviewed most of the cats you played with, except for the ones that were already gone. But the thing is that, um, and I'm going to send you all those interviews, but the thing is, like, can you talk about the squawky speaker systems that you were playing out of? Because the thing is, I mean, you know, I was when I interviewed Steve Cropper, he was like, Al Jackson told him and ducked on. He said, you know, the only thing that really matters is that the first couple rows of the audience are, are they think you know what you're doing because nobody can hear in the back. I mean, there was no, the basically... You didn't have this kind of state-of-the-art sound system, so your ears had to grow on the bandstand, and you didn't have the ability to just, you know, play what you wanted to play. You had to listen, and there had to be a real conversation. I mean, can you talk about a time when you were, like, I remember talking to Mayneri about this, too. I mean, you know, he, he there not everything was mic'd all the time, you know? I mean, I think that that had something to do with what you're talking. I mean, the epidemic today of the facility and the, and the chops, as opposed to just having a conversation, I think some of it has to do with, 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 with the, with the, with, the, with the, just the, the, the ambience of the, of the sound that's now that we have. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, can you talk about one of these times that you played where you, you, you could, you, you really had to listen? Well, I'm always listening. I know that was one of my fortes, but uh, yeah, one stands on a mind. I did a I did a gig at the Place des Arts with, <clears throat> in Ottawa with Joe Williams, and something was wrong with the sound system, so we ended up going acoustic. Uh, so he has a powerful voice, and uh, so the piano was fine, bass was a little more difficult. He pointed out, so I just played the whole concert with brushes, and um, super listening, playing with brushes, doing all the stuff I normally do. And I remember, like, Joe coming up to me at the end of the gig, just loving the whole thing. He said, we should play acoustic every concert from <laughs> now on. I finally can hear everything. And I love your brush playing, man. That is, like, some of the best brush, brush playing I've ever heard. Like, let's go out for dinner. And then we went out for steak dinner, you know. So, And I just thought to myself, shit, man. I was like, I just, I, be, I just tweaked into, like, being more sensitive and playing quieter. I remember when I went for first to New York and I played with Dave Brubeck. Wow. Uh, well, when was this? Mm -hmm. 
What year was Brubeck? Uh, I remember it was, yeah, I went to see, I actually was going down to see Pat LaBarba because he was playing with Alvin Jones then. And I was 20 years old. I'm 65. So it's 45 years ago. And so I, I, I came into the studio and I met everybody. I met his son, the bass player. I met him. And then, so they asked me if I wanted to sit in and play a couple of these numbers. They were just like jamming like before they were going to set up and do all that. So I did. And I was playing with them. And at that time, I was working with Rob McConnell and Ed Bickard. I don't know if you know all these guys. Uh, well, I mean, and Bickard, I still need to get to that cat. But go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I don't know if you'll get to him. But <laughs> Sam Noto and all these cats. So I was working with all those guys, and I went to New York because um, a couple of my friends said, man, you should move to New York and stay there and don't come home. You know, so I went down there for a month to check it all out, and I went to see Pat, and he was playing with Alvin. And that's when I met Dave Brubeck and his son and everybody. So I played with him. The point of the story is I played just a couple numbers. I was into the first number about 10 minutes, five minutes, and then everybody's looking at me. And they're looking at me, and I'm starting to feel really self-conscious. And I say, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> you know. And finally, I just stopped, and I, could, I couldn't play anymore. I said, guys, I said, you're making me nervous. Why is everybody looking at me like that? He goes, man, we don't know what to do. Like, we, we can hear each other for the first time. And I, the bass player said, man, I, I'm actually self-conscious because I need to concentrate on the lines I'm playing because I could finally hear myself for the first time in years. I said, are you kidding me? He goes, do you always play that quiet? I said, I didn't think I was playing that quiet. I was just playing at a volume that I could hear everybody. And so if you're talking to me and I'm shouting at you, I can't hear you. You know, so it's just common sense, you know. And and I know at that time in New York, like Alvin was a loud, strong player. I mean, when I went to see Alvin, man, he was just crashing and bashing it out. And I couldn't hear it. I couldn't hear the stuff half the time. And, and Pat LaBarber was wailing. And, it, and I went to see Tony Williams play with McCoy Tyner, and I couldn't hear McCoy. You know, and Tony was killing it, and everybody was going crazy. And I remember going, I don't get it. For myself, personally, I don't get it. I don't hear it that way. Is it just me? I mean, all night long at volume 10, where I can't hear the dynamics and I can't hear the piano player, I don't get it. What are they playing to, you know? So I need to play at a level where I can hear everybody and I can feed off everybody and create some music. That's my thing, you know? And I think that became strengthened the more I became involved in understanding about music and not just drums. You know, my dad once said to me, you should learn how to play the vibraphone. You should have played this because, you know, you ever notice when they're ever talking about music, uh, that their back is to the drummer? That's because the drummer doesn't know anything about music. And I go, oh, my God, what a terrible <laughs> thing to say. You know, like, like some of my favorite drummers, and he's, like, he's dissing these drummers saying they don't know anything about music. And then I hear Dom say this thing, about there's a lot of great drummers in the world, but they're not all great musicians. That's right. Know? That's right. And I know what he's I know what he's talking about. I totally because the musicians who want to play with a drummer that yeah you're 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 technically proficient, but they want to play with somebody that's musical, somebody that can create things and feed off each other, and not just play you know drumistic things. You know, so I don't know if I'm like going off on a tangent. No, you haven't. I'm having a ball. No, I, I you you kind of. Um, you know, like basically, I, I you're telling me that when Elvin, when you saw Elvin and Tony, they didn't play with any dynamics at all. It was just complete glad bashing all the way around. Yeah, I couldn't hear. I couldn't hear the piano and bass player. It's pretty humbling to hear, actually, because we, you know, I, I even listening to, I don't know, I just, I, I, I kind of thought that those cats were. I know that they crushed it, but I just can't even imagine that, that, you know, like someone like McCoy. McCoy, I mean, I don't know what years these were. Maybe it was, maybe it was just like, you know, the, the, the invasion of, uh, of heavy rock, you know? I don't know. Well, it was the invasion of, of modal music. You know, when the modal music came out, it was just like all out, all for blood, go for it, you know? Like all night long. You know, I remember there was that whole modal phase and everybody was going crazy, especially McCoy. You know... But, Listen, all all great players, amazing players. I'm not saying anything critical about it. I'm, it's it's totally different, like for each individual. But I know for myself that when I was working with Dizzy, he when I was playing with Dizzy, I, there were so many other drummers that played with him already: Roy Haynes, Mickey Rourke, uh, Elvin Jones, like uh, you know, uh, so many players that filled that chair before I did, and I, I felt very humbled, you know. And and when I went in there playing with Dizzy, I figured, okay, I'm just gonna. 
You said, I, you said I'm just going to play yeah, what? I'm, right. I'm, I'm just going to keep it simple and, and play my sweet spot and kick his ass because he loved it when I kicked his ass. He, really, he would actually lean right into me when I'm doing that and yeah, yeah, and egg me on. But I wouldn't be crashing and bashing and banging. I'd be playing really intense time, you know, and my fills that I'd play would be related to the solos that are going on around me, you know, and a lot of times my drum solos are a lot simpler than they are today. My drum solos have definitely changed today. I'm much more complex than I used to be. I'm also influenced by all the great drummers when you see them. You know, so it's, it's, it, it's kind of like a, a sore spot with me. It's like the never-ending saga of uh, finding the right balance, you know. Because, you know, you, you, could, you could put somebody up there and they could do a drum solo for 15 minutes and they're flashing all around, doing crossovers and twirling sticks and everybody's going crazy and they think it's amazing, you know. And then you get a drummer up there who plays just amazing, amazing musical feels and amazing feel. And people are going, yeah, that's cool. I like that. You know, it's, it's the same old story, right? Showmanship, flash. Hmm. I mean, you're really, you know? I mean, it's, it's, I'm going to read you a quote here from my interview with the, the bass player, Larry Klein, because I mean, you played with a lot of staunch boppers, beboppers, but at the same time, you also played with like, you know, freaking Peter Appleyard. Like, these guys were definitely playing, like, you know, this wasn't, like, straight at, always straight ahead. But this is what Klein said. He said, um, Freddie Hubbard would be playing a festival, and you could feel this attitude from bop purists in degrees of subtlety. Quoting them, obviously, you guys aren't playing the real shit. Bebop, where you're just, you know, where you're just running your ass off and playing as much and everything you know in one solo. My theory is that it's a generational thing. The guys that actually came up with the language, whether it's Train or Miles or Charlie Parker, you generally find that they don't have that kind of snobbery towards other idioms and towards other tributaries musically. They tend to be wide-open souls. I mean... I would agree. I, you know, being that you played with... I'm not saying Noto. I mean, I've been tracking Noto. That dude is such a badass. But those cats... I mean, was there was there this idea of saying, you know... Enough, I don't want, I mean, enough of the purity here. We have, the, the music has to move on. Yeah. Miles was, Miles was bored to death, right? I mean, just riff on that any way you yeah. want. Yeah. Yeah, but there's a lot of cats, like you, you mentioned Peter Alpiard. Uh, Peter Alpiard was very fixated on, on like, having the drummer play a role. And that role, role was extremely simplistic, similar to Flip Phillips and Art Farmer and Pepper Adams and Lee Konitz, all those guys that I worked with, very similar. It got to the point where I just felt like, you know, all due respect, these guys are awesome, but they're not giving you enough freedom musically that I want to have. I did. You know? So this is getting a bit a bit trite for me. You know, it's like, I just don't want to play that feel that they're, even Oscar. Oscar was notorious for that. Like, turn around and ready to rip your head off. If you just, just straight down the middle, that's all they wanted to hear from you. Don't play any fancy stuff on the bass drum. Keep that hi-hat on two and four. And keep that, don't break up your triplets in the right hand, you know. <laughs> uh, so I can do all my shit, you know. And so, yeah, so night after night, people go crazy because Oscar's playing up the piano. And you're, you're like, I'm not going to say bored to death, but after, like, doing a number of concerts from city to city and playing the same tunes and you know that this is your function. Okay, and then a lot of guys would justify it. And they'd say, you know, drummers... Drummers, I really respect drummers. They got to have a lot of discipline to play the time thing over and over and over and not vary. And I feel like saying, like, bugger off, you guys. <laughs> there's ways, there's ways of playing the time, and there's ways of playing the time. And that's what I liked about Tony Williams and his his approach was so fresh, you know, and that he played the time, but that pulse, it was the pulse. Like, where's the one? I don't know. I, one's not definitive. Like the pulse, the pulse is definitive, you know, and. And it will move in different directions, uh, and you can follow it. But it was innovative, you know. It wasn't so trite like from the old days, you know. So um, it's probably yeah, why it's probably why guys. I love the uh, it's probably why I love the the Oscar Peterson trio with Stan Getz, drummerless quartet. You know, I mean, it's just it, it, there's more freedom. It, it it burns harder than anything with a drummer. Well, there was a period of time when there was even in the states and in Canada where. It was this whole thing that was emerging. Guys were hiring bands without drummers. 
And I'm going, they're trying to tell these drummers something, you know, (laughs) they're trying to tell these drummers something and nobody's listening, you know, you know, so I'm curious though, do you think that the the drummers were actually like actually trying to make a message saying we're bored to death. What do you mean they were trying to tr- tell the drummer something? The drummers were too busy. Too busy. And and they and I'm but you know, to I remember And a lot of like that. And so it was not the most satisfying thing. Can you start the story over? Can you start the story over again? We we went through kind of a a, a muddy signal there. Go ahead, start over again. With who? With which story? You said I remember playing Peter. one time. With Peter. Yeah. Yeah, I was playing with the quintet. And great musicians in the band, all top-notch studio players. So, of course, I'm feeling a little more inspired. We start to play one of the that swing tune, and I think from Benny McGoodman, Benny Goodman's era. And I was playing a little fancier than uh, I guess he was used to. Uh, not like one of the older cats, you know, like Jerry Fuller, who used to play with him a lot, who's passed away. I don't know if you know Jerry or not. Oh, I never heard of him. Yeah. At any rate... Um, he really gave me hell for that and made it clear that if you want to work with me, this is what I require from the drummer, you know? So, and it's just four, four lightly on the bass drum, two and four on the hi-hat and straight ahead triplets. And if it's a bossa nova, straight eight notes, four, four on the bass drum and two and four on the hi-hat. So they can do other things. That's what they wanted from the drummer. Plain and simple. And you hear it in so many recordings and you hear it in a lot of Oscars recordings and stuff like that. And, uh, I just, we're tired of that. And finally, when I hooked up with Dizzy, you know, I said, oh, when he came to me and he said, just let me know where one is at the eight of eight bars, uh, at the end of eight bars. It was because he wanted me to be more experimental, you know, to play more of what I heard. And, and if he got lost in, in my super in position or whatever I was doing, that just smash out the one or indicate the one so he knows where I am, you know, in the structure. <laughs> you know, you know. It's so great, man. No, it's so chill. Yeah. I don't know what, what that's... You know, a, yeah, go ahead. But, you know, Tony Williams, Tony Williams wouldn't do that when he was with Dizzy. Like, Tony Williams, I love Tony Williams, and this was a shocker to me. I remember we were walking through the hallway of a hotel one day, and, and um, he was writing a note. When Dizzy, when he wasn't happy about something that you're doing, you're playing, he'd write you a note in an envelope and stick it under your your hotel room door. Hmm. So I saw him putting, writing a note and putting it under the door of the piano player, you know? And so I asked him, what's, what's going on? What you, what's, what's that all about this? Cause we we're going out for breakfast and he said, Oh man, I just got to say it the way it is. And blah, 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 blah. One time I remember I, I was playing with Tony and I, I had to write him this note, you know, and he, he read the note and he came out and he told me to F off, you know? So I let him know where the things were at because he, too damn busy and too loud for me, you know? <laughs> I went, whoa. Okay. Even he was too, he was, he was too busy for Dizzy. <laughs> too busy and too loud. That's what, that's what Dizzy said. He had a few other choice words, but I don't want to repeat them, you know? I have a question. Uh, I know this is yeah. interesting because, uh, uh, you know, um, I interviewed uh, Jack Wilkins, the guitar player, and he, he, um, he was talking about um, two other cats that I've done multiple interviews with, with John McLaughlin and, and Al Miola, and he goes, you know, they have impeccable time, but the beat falls in the... St- we lost... You still there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. You know, he said the beat... He said he said they have impeccable time, but the beat falls in the oddest places. And I'm curious, as a drummer, who comes to mind... Somebody you played with who had impeccable time, but the beat fell in the strangest places. I think Alvin Jones comes to mind when you say that. But I mean, you didn't play with Alvin, though. I'm, I'm, what I'm talking about is like even Wilkins was like, he's like, I went back and transcribed some of their music, and their time is impeccable. It just doesn't. It's jagged, he said. I'm just curious about like you know, you play with Lenny Bro. 
I mean, that guy, yeah. that that dude was about as untrue. Can you talk about playing with Lenny? That was like, um, how could I describe that? It's like sitting in a marshmallow cake. <laughs> That's the only way I can describe it. Like let's, let's unpack that, though. I mean, for the, for the layperson. Yeah. Um, he, Lenny was just um, was like a sponge. He was like a sponge. Continue. Yeah. I don't know. The moment you start to play with a guy like that, then you go, oh, my God, okay. I've got to get into a whole different dimension here and play with a different sensitivity. You know, and, and again, I'm going to bring this up. The only thing that matters is the music, right? Everything should be sacrificed for, like, the outcome of the music. And that's the time. Like, like a statement, like you said, like, they have impeccable time, but the time feels jagged. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think I know what you're talking about. It doesn't always flow. I mean, maybe maybe where they were playing their, their displacement beats wasn't really in the right place. You know, maybe it was in an odd place. Maybe it wasn't methodically thought out musically, you know, and it, it felt out of place. Maybe that's what he was saying, because I hear that a lot, you know, like I hear guys playing and go, wow, you got amazing chops, amazing time. But like, are you aware of where you're displacing those notes and how it's not sinking in or it has no relationship to what the piano player just comped and what the horn player just played on that horn, you know? And, it, and, it, and so from that point of view, it felt, out of place. Right. It felt like, oh, that came, that right. came in a weird place. Right. So jagged is not a word I'd use, and I just felt like this placement or the displacement of that is not, you, you need to like rethink how you're approaching playing in a rhythm section with these guys, because here's a piano player who's part of the rhythm section playing out this rhythm, and you should not be playing the same rhythm. You should be playing something that complements what he's doing. And then you have the horn player who's playing this line. Like the, the piano player is actually changing his voicings based on what melodic thing is happening with the, with the soloist, right? So the drummer should be doing the same thing, not thinking about, oh, I'm going to play this super in position right here. I'm going to play six, six against the four here. I'm going to play this subdivision bar over here. No, you just don't think about any of that stuff. You throw that all out the window and you just play the music for as it comes up and... I don't know if I can answer that question any other way. Like that's my approach. So you do all this studying, you study your time, you study your chops, you study harmony, you study theory. But in the end, when you go up to play, you just like forget about all this stuff and you just play the music and it should always be related to like a conversation, you know, from that point of view. I don't know if I'm answering your question. No, it's fantastic. It is a conversation. I mean, that's part of what also I just, to me, it's like, you know, that, that whole thing about jagged, like, I know what you're saying. Like, you know, if you, if I listen to Dave Weckl, Dave's got incredible technique, incredible feel. He's actually one of the drummers that really blessed musically. Like, he has a, a real sensitivity to the music. You know, even though like he he's playing less busy as he's getting older, I noticed. You know, than he did when he was in his 30s. You know, and he definitely playing more uh, supportive to what's going on with the music, and not so much just it's all centered around the drums. All the music is written around the drums, which was, in that case, in the Dave Weckl band, a lot of that was. When he played with Chick Corea, he played totally different, you know. Um, well, I, I had a very, very, I, I just think that the cat is, I mean, I've done 3,500 interviews, and I've met a ton of cats in person, and I've never met a more selfish individual than that cat. So, I mean, I, I'm glad that he's evolving on the Did drums. selfish? Yeah, I mean, he, he, I mean, we had a horrible... He was absolutely abhorrent and awful to me uh, when I went to see Randy Brecker to do a Facebook Live interview, and he's such an insecure cat. So he might have the greatest chops in the world, and maybe he's playing more supportive now. I wish him the best of luck, but I am not a fan of Dave Weckl. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny you should mention that. I remember I went to New York, see him play with one of his bands. This is going back about uh, six years ago. Yeah. That front row brought my whole family. He was all excited to hear the band. We had dinner first, and then uh, it might have been at the zinc bar, you know, I'm not sure. Sure. And uh, we sat for an hour, and my and at the end, I had brought, all my kids were there, and my, my wife was with me, and, and at the end of the set, 
I just felt, I have to get out of here. I got to get it. I was like, I felt a bit nauseous. Now, players were incredible. Like, all the music was incredible. But I just felt like there's so many notes flying by, even in the ballads. It, after a while, it just felt like verbal diarrhea. And I started to actually feel a bit nauseous. There was not enough space and textures for me to breathe. And, and my wife said, so you want to stay for another set? I said, no, I need to get out. Get <laughs> I'm going to throw up. <laughs> I need some fresh air. You know what it is? I, I don't even, I don't, da- I know that, you know, that he's an amazing drummer. He's not an evolved human being. And it was very evident when he came in with Cern and Brecker. He didn't, they couldn't even do sound check because I told him to, I said, do not, he basically told me how to be a journalist. I said, listen, you go back and sit on your drum kit because I'm not going to tell you how to play drums. You don't tell me how to be a journalist. That set him off. He, could, he was going to throw me through a wall. And the next thing you know, they did sound check. They didn't play one tune. He was just screaming the whole time. So listen, bless him. I hope he does. I hope he has continued success. It, just, it was shocking considering the sort of, people that I've come along on this journey like Silverman, Famolaro, Cobham, et cetera, et cetera, you know? Anyway, I'm glad, I'm, yeah, I'm glad yeah, that... I, I don't know Dave, I don't know Dave very well. I know that uh, he's played some incredible music. You know, oh, absolutely. People, but, I don't doubt uh, that. It's just like, you know, get yeah. the memo about being a human being, dude, and don't tell me, listen, yeah. you're a great drummer, I'm not going to tell you how to play the drums. Don't tell me how to be a journalist. And that's, yeah. that was the essence of it. You know, uh, but, but... Well, the only reason why I brought his name up because of, of a lot of the cats that I've heard play right. in the last 10 years when you talk about displacement of the beat and they have, like, solid time. <clears throat> Dave is, like, really good at that, where you could still feel the pulse moving, and he's, he's one of the better guys at doing that. That, that I, I will give him, you know. I'm not, you know, I'm not doubting his chops, and and uh, yeah. but but can I, can you just talk about? Um, did, have you ever crossed paths with uh, Tasiji Munoz? No. Are you? Do you know who he is? Yeah, I do. Okay. Yeah, why? Oh, he is my uh, spiritual guru, and uh, I sent you an interview just uh, while we've been on the phone. I sent, you, I, I just inundated your inbox with all the Canadian cats that I've interviewed and. You know, he told this amazing, you know, Schaefer, Paul Schaefer told this amazing story about uh, being pretty depressed and almost despondent, ready to give up music. And then this Latin cat comes along and or he, uh, rather he's this Latin cat's playing guitar on a stoop. And Paul was just sort of mesmerized. And they spent three days in a practice room. And the, the long and the short of it is that, you know, he became his spiritual master. And I, I just wanted you to talk about oh. a time in your career when you faced a lot of adversity and how you overcame it, how it made you a stronger person and player? Um, just, I remember one in particular. Um, I was a really good show drummer, like when I was a young kid. Like I grew up listening to all the shows, the big band stuff. And so I got hired to play in this orchestra for this, um, like a dance kind of thing. And the contractor just loved my playing. I was like 17 years old, and he thought, wow, who's this kid able to play all this music and this kind of stuff? So uh, there's this famous theater in Toronto called the Royal Alexander Theater, and there's like historical events that have happened there. So he hired me to do a show there called Irene. It was featuring Debbie Reynolds. And it's the time when uh, Ed McMahon was like the sidekick to, uh, what's his name, Johnny Carson. Right? Yeah, mm-hmm. So they, they really promoted the shit out of this, this show, and it was like it was like three months long, a big orchestra, 35-piece orchestra. So when I came there for the rehearsals on the first day, contractor came up to me and says, we have a problem. I said, what's that? He said, they brought their own drummer, you know, from their own rhythm section to do the show. I said, oh, man. I said, like, I was depending on this to pay for my rent and everything for the next year. That's the money I was going to make for <laughs> right. this thing. So I said, I'm going to have to go to the union and speak to my rep then. He goes, no, there's no need to do that. He goes, you're going to go over there. And he pointed to the other percussionists that had timpanis and bells and xylophones and chimes and everything under the sun. So I said, but I'm not a percussionist. I don't have a lot of training in that. You know? He said, you'll be fine. You're a good musician. You'll be fine. You know? So I was so nervous about that. Um, just a new experience and playing all that timpanis and all that kind of stuff. I wasn't trained for that kind of stuff. Um, but 
the conductor twigged onto my nervousness, my insecurity, and then used me as a whipping boy, you know, for the, pretty much the entire time. It really it was a devastating uh, affair for me. And at the time, I was studying with Jim Blackley, and I guess Jim Blackley was my kind of spiritual guru then. He kind of saved me. I was like, how did he say? How did he say? Well, how did he save you? And how was the guy torturing you? Um, he would stop all the time and give me shit for little mistakes. Uh, give me lectures in front of a thirty-five piece orchestra. Right. You know, and any time something went wrong, he'd pick on me. Like I was the go-to guy. Right. I was the kid that would take it. You know. And of course, the more nervous I became, the more mistakes I made. Absolutely. Right? So. Yeah. So um, I couldn't sleep at night. I was a nervous wreck and. But I needed the money, so Jim Jim Blackley would pull me aside, and we'd have like many talks. You know, like I'd have a two-hour lesson, but it would end up being like a four-hour lesson. Like we just talk about life, talk to me about how to handle myself uh, with my nerves, uh, how to deal with these um, these type of conductors, and prepared me for all these type of leaders that I'll probably play with. That their sole mission, because you're so young, is to cut you down in front of everybody. He says, it exists, it goes on all the time. It's part of the scene. You have to toughen yourself to it, and you have to be, find that inner strength, you know, and your peace. So Jim was already, I think, um, a Buddhist at that. He was practicing Buddhist by then. So he was very spiritual, and he was helping me with all this stuff. Of course, I am I was a nice Jewish boy, you know. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I didn't go to uh, the synagogue on a regular basis, but I was also a very spiritual person. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I don't know. There are endless, endless conversations and stories about life and how to handle your emotions and, and how to think. And so that, that set me on my path and my journey to start searching, you know. Uh, but he sort of took me under his wing, almost like, you know, became my father, you know, for a number of years. You know, I just wanted to ask you... Uh, got, me in, got me into meditation as well, you know? Well, I was going to say that, no, I mean, the did you, do you remember after spending time with him and him sort of just talking to you about toughening up or becoming more... Uh, did, did, was there, at the next time, was there a situation when you were being bullied and how... It, you allowed it to sort of let it all fall away. I mean, how did you know that you had overcome that sort of, you know, sort how of... How did I know? I'll tell you how. <laughs> yeah. Like, on that same show, because this is all going on, and I, 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 I kept seeing Jim, like, through the whole show, not even for lessons. I'd just come over and visit him and hang out and talk and stuff. And So I guess about the last month of the show, like, I just, okay, you know what? I'm going to memorize all this music. I'm going to come in every day during the day except the matinee and and work on all this stuff and memorize this stuff so I just watch the conductor all the time so he can't blame me for any more mistakes. And that's what I did. And I remember there was one passage on a Saturday matinee, and uh, I was watching him to the T. He was, like, choreographing something from up on the stage. The dancers were all dancing, and I was playing the timps. And there was the trombones beside me and the trumpets, and they were off. And they were reading the music. They were off, and I'm looking square at his baton and at him, and not moving at the end of the number, he threw down his baton and bent down and gave me shit in front of everybody. And I just lo- I just finally lost it. And I took my, I actually took my Tiffany Smallis and threw him at him. <laughs> I love it, dude. I freaking I love it. I recommend doing that, but in front of everybody, it, 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 one of them dinged his shoulder, the other one flew up and landed in the first row where the people were sitting, which was not too cool. But I didn't. Whatever, dude. It was not. You weren't doing. You were doing your part, and he's still going after you. It's it's just crap. Yeah. So, I I, I did that, and uh, and I didn't get fired from the gig. But it took <laughs> seventeen years for him to hire me back into that theater again. Seventeen years later, you know, and but and what I've learned, I learned how to become more assertive in a positive way and not take shit from anybody, you know. And, and I think that that's something that I don't know if anybody could teach you that. Uh, you just have to acquire it over a period of time. I was just a young fisher. Like, what was I, 15, 17 years old, you know? Uh, thank goodness I had uh, 
this this man on my side, Jim Jim Blackley, because otherwise it would have been a lot more trial and error. It would have been more difficult. But he actually told me how to groom myself for these leaders that would be coming. I got a gig at this place called Bourbon Street as the house drummer when I was 18. I was playing for all these guys, you know, like Zoot Sims and um, Art Farmer, Pepper Adams. They would come in. I can't remember this one drum player, well-known drum player. I think I blocked him out on purpose. I was subbing for Jerry Fuller, and uh, came in there, and, and he wouldn't play. He saw, he, he saw this young kid on the drums, and what the hell did he, this kid know? You know, and he didn't want to play. So the con, the contractor came up to him and said, "Listen, man, like you're under contract here. It's it was start at nine. It's quarter to ten. We have to play. We can't go on like this. The kid can play. Otherwise, he wouldn't be right. So just let him play." So what does he do? He gets up there with his back to me and he counts off a tempo. One, two, one, two, three, four. You know, and this blistering fast four tempo, right? Thinking he's going to, and I thought, okay, you motherfucker. <laughs> this is my game. You know? And I, right up his ass, right up his ass. And that's, Jim actually grew me for that. He said that would happen. He said they used to do that to cats in New York all the time, whether they're drummers, bass players, piano players, or horn players. They, they ask him to sit in and then he tried to like cut them up. They did that to Bird. You know, they did the same thing to Bird, and then he he went and up, up went away for like six months a year. Which had his ass off, came back and everybody eat crow. You know, so and that was a thing that goes on. That still goes on. I remember when I was in in Brazil on a big tour with Dizzy, and they knew we were there. Just they were jealous. You know, we we're, were from another country. We come in and we're playing with this big star. So they asked us to come in and and join us. You know, and and everything was cool, and they wanted us to get you know, drunk with them and everything else like this. And then they wanted to put us up on stage and like cut us down, you know, but I was already prepared for all that stuff. You know, I went through all that stuff already, you know, you know, so you wonder, uh, if what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation has something to do with the fact that that doesn't really exist anymore because there's really not a touring circuit in this country or, uh, maybe in Japan and Europe, but there's really not a cut a, a circuit to cut to be cut on in the states. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, same in Canada. Just uh, you know, I'm gonna have to go and clean this up, but uh, let's definitely do. Howie, it was great to hang with you, man. Let's definitely do part two, and I will. Um, this is gonna run this weekend, and I'll send you a link. Uh, um, uh, so you can you you can tune in. I'm just gonna have it on a loop. Uh, streaming for about 48 hours. Let's definitely uh, set up a time to do part two. I'll I'll edit this down and uh, I will uh, send you a link so that I'll just have it on a loop uh, this weekend, Saturday and Sunday. So uh, people around the world uh, can, can, can stream it. And uh, it was really an honor to hang with you, man. It was really nice meeting you, Jake. It was a pleasure. It was a, it's a true honor. And, uh, um, and let's do it again. And, uh, and thanks, for the, uh, yeah, thanks for the enlightenment, dude. It was great. And I also, uh, I, will, I'm gonna, I, I found you on Facebook. I, I waved to you. So I'm going to send you a friend request because I'll, <laughs> okay. I'll be transcribing these things, these stories as well, man. Much love to you, Howie. Same to you. Okay, Jake. Take care. Later on, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks to Dom Fumilaro for hooking us up. Howie Silverman, decorated drummer. Another Canadian in the books. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. We'll be back later. Until then, peace.